Well, good evening. Long trip. I left Napa this morning, which is up by PUC. I was visiting my daughter who lives up there. Left about 8 o'clock in the morning and arrived here at uh, almost 6 o'clock. Lots of traffic. Has anybody here come from a further place than PUC? Where did you come from? Oh, my. North Carolina. On second thought, I just came from around the corner. (laughs) It's a real privilege to be here with this very select group of youth and young adults. I see very encouraging things happening in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'd like to just share two of them with you before we open God's Word. I had the privilege about a month ago of speaking at the Inter-American Division Youth Congress in the city of Medellin, Colombia. They had about 6,000 young people gathered there. This was... um, an event that was organized by the Inter-American Division. It was very spiritually enriching, but the music was deplorable. And it was exciting for me to have uh, youth directors from conferences and youth directors from unions and youth and young adults coming to me constantly complaining about the music. You know, if this had been just, uh, you know, some denominational leaders, it would be different. But it was actually originating at the grassroots, which is very, very encouraging. Um, A second interesting episode, I had the privilege last week of um, speaking to a group of 200 uh, lay leaders in uh, near San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, and they are having just terrible problems in Puerto Rico with uh, worship styles. Uh, it's come to the point where uh, they have dancing on the stage, raising the hands, shouting, clapping. Uh, the only thing that's lacking is speaking in tongues. <laughs> you know, but that might come down the road. But the encouraging thing is that uh, when I got back home, which was on Thursday, I got a call from uh, the youth director of the West Puerto Rico Conference. And he said, Pastor Bohr, I've had multiple requests by the young people in our conference to have a camp at uh, our campsite uh, with you presenting a series on proper biblical worship. He says the encouraging thing about this is this was not an idea that we came up with. This was an idea that the young people came up with. And there's over 500 young people that want to go to this camp out and want to learn proper ways of worship according to Scripture so that they can go back to their churches and they can teach their churches the proper way to worship. So there are exciting things happening in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is God's remnant church. 
You know, Israel did not cease being God's special people even in the periods of the worst kings like like Ammon and Manasseh, which were horrendous times for Israel. They were still God's people. They were an apostasy. But uh, then you had Josiah show up. And uh, they allowed God to use them in a powerful way uh, to bring revival and reformation among God's people. And as I look at this group, I have no doubts whatsoever that the future of the church is bright and the finishing of the work is here, gathered here this evening through the power of God, us lending ourselves as instruments in the hands of God. I want to thank uh, Michael James, whom I've only met online And uh, I want to thank Norman also for uh, the privilege, because I know that he had some some clout for me being here, um, because I was with uh, Advent Hope at Loma Linda last year. So was it last year? Year before last, wasn't it? It was last year. And and so I want to thank them for the awesome privilege of being here to spend this weekend with this very select group. It's exciting. It makes me feel younger. Now, before we get into our study this evening, we want to have a special moment of prayer to ask the Lord's guidance. Did you bring your Bibles? Let me see your Bibles. Raise them high. Raise them high. Praise the Lord. This is beautiful. Did you get get this? Did you get this on camera? Raise them again. Praise the Lord. We're the people of the book, right? All right. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being here in this place of worship. We thank you, Father, that you brought us safely, that your angels have watched over us as uh, many of us have traveled from different places. And Father, we ask that as we open your holy word, that your Holy Spirit will manifest himself powerfully here. I ask, Lord, that you will open our minds and give us understanding and that you will open our hearts and plant the seed of truth in each heart. And we ask, Lord, that you will help us understand the urgency of the times that we're living in. Father, that if there's anyone who is indolent, anyone who is just sitting around doing nothing, I ask, Lord, that this evening we might be inspired to get out and shout from the rooftops that Jesus is coming again, and we must prepare. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer, and we thank you for hearing us, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin this evening by reviewing a prophecy which I believe that probably most all of us are acquainted with, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. And we're not going to study all of the details of Daniel chapter 7. I'm just going to review certain aspects of the chapter, and my special interest is in getting to the point of the fourth beast of Daniel 7. Now, you're going to help me along to review this chapter, so you know that in Daniel 7, there's a lion. What does the lion represent? Very well, Babylon. Then you have a bear. What does the bear represent? The bear represents Medo-Persia. Very well. Then you have a leopard. What does the leopard represent? represents the kingdom of Greece. And then you have a fourth beast, which is a terrible beast. We call it the nondescript beast, but really, it's a dragon beast. And what does this dragon beast represent? The dragon beast represents Rome. 
Now what I want us to notice as we begin our study this evening is that this fourth beast has four consecutive stages of dominion. The fourth beast has four consecutive stages of dominion. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 and take a look at that. Daniel chapter 7, and uh, we want to read verse 23, and then we'll continue reading also verse 24. Daniel chapter 7 and verses 23 and 24. I want you to notice four stages of the fourth beast. Verse 23, thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Stage number one, the fourth beast governing by itself. No horns yet. Just the dragon beast by itself. That dragon beast represents the Roman Empire, what we call pagan Rome. Now let's go to verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Let me ask you, must the kingdom be there in order for the ten horns to arise from the kingdom? Obviously. So in other words, the kingdom is there for a while before the ten horns come out. The dragon beast with the ten horns represents the second stage of this fourth beast of Rome. It represents Rome in a divided state. In other words, it represents Rome as it's been divided up by the barbarians who have invaded from the north. But then I want you to notice that there is a third stage in uh, this fourth beast. Once again, verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And now notice, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall, shall subdue three kings. So you notice that there's a third stage to this fourth beast. The third stage is when a little horn rises among the ten and uproots three of those ten kingdoms. And of course we know that that little horn represents what? represents the papal system, the Roman Catholic papacy. That's right. So we've seen three stages so far. Rome ruling by, ruling by itself. Rome divided into ten kingdoms. And papal Rome represented by the little horn. Now I mentioned that there are four stages to uh, the fourth beast. Where is the fourth stage? The fact is that in Daniel 7, the fourth stage is implicit. In other words, it does not come out in the surface of the text. But you can strongly infer a fourth stage of this fourth beast. And you say, how is that? Let's go to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25 and notice something interesting about this little horn. It says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law, the saints, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Was there a limit to the period of rule of the little horn? Yes. 1,260 years. It would rule not one day longer. 
because if it ruled one day longer, then it wouldn't be 1260 years. But if you continue reading Daniel 7, you'll discover something very interesting. And that is that the little horn power is the power that is going to be ruling the world when Jesus comes. Because it's the power that will be destroyed when Jesus comes. Which means that after its dominion of 1260 years, it must rise to power again. By the way, what is implicit in Daniel 7 is explicit in Revelation 13. Because the beast is equivalent to the little horn. And we're told explicitly, and I'll talk more about this in the sermon tomorrow morning, uh, Revelation 13 explicitly says that this beast received a deadly wound at the end of the 42 months, but its deadly wound was healed, and the whole world wondered after the beast. So the little horn has two stages. The stage during the 1260 years, or the 42 months, and the period of dominion at the very end of time before the second coming of Jesus. Now let's go back to verse 25 and notice several characteristics of this little horn. It says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. It says, The saints will be given into His hand for a time and times and half a time. Now I skipped one phrase there on purpose because that's the one that we're going to take a look at especially in our study tonight. The phrase that I skipped was that the little horn shall what? Intend, New King James, shall think, according to the King James Version, shall think to change what? Times and law. Now, as Adventists, we have no problems in explaining the change in the law. What was the change in the law? The change in the law was the change of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. Roman Catholic authors constantly have quotations where they say that the church, by the authority that Christ gave it, changed the day from Sabbath to Sunday or transferred the day from Sabbath to Sunday. So we don't have any problems with the little horn changing the law. We have a problem with it, but we don't have any problem understanding what that means. It simply means that the little horn, the papacy, uh, thought that it could change the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. But when it comes to the times, very little is said in the Seventh-day Adventist church about how the little horn thought that he could change the times. Now, some of our scholars have Uh, stated that the proper way to uh, translate Daniel 7 verse 25 is the little horn should intend to change the times in the law. The problem with that is that there's not a single translation in the world that translates it that way. That is a private Seventh-day Adventist interpretation. Furthermore, the original language which this is written in Aramaic explicitly says that he should intend to change times and law. In other words, the little horn thinks he can change two different things, times and law. Now, we don't have any any problems with the change of the law, but what does this mean, he shall think to change the times? Well, go back with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. 
and verse 21. And what I want us to notice in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 is three elements that we find in this verse. Three consecutive elements. And notice the order. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. It's speaking about God. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar received a dream. He couldn't remember it. So he was going to have all of the wise men killed. They rounded up Daniel. Daniel said, give us time. He goes and he prays along with his three friends. Now let's notice verse 21. Speaking about God, Daniel is praying to him. He says, for he what? Changes the times and the seasons. Who is it that changes the times and the seasons? God. The little horn thought that he could change what? The times. So does the little horn want to exercise the prerogatives of God? He most certainly does. So notice, he changes the times and the seasons. Second idea, he removes kings and raises up kings. Two things so far. Number one, God changes the times and the seasons. Number two, he removes kings and raises up kings. And then number three, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge. Notice wisdom. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Three ideas in this verse. Number one, God changes the times and the seasons. Number two, he removes kings and places kings. And number three, he gives wisdom and knowledge to the wise. Now what I I want us to notice is that in the rest of Daniel 2 and Daniel 3, these three phrases are picked up and explained or amplified. But they are amplified in reverse order. In other words, they're not explained, uh, God changes times and seasons, God removes kings and raises up kings, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. But actually it begins with explaining how God gives wisdom and understanding, then how He places and removes kings, and then finally, how God changes the times and the seasons. Now, go with me to verse 23, and let's notice how this third phrase In Daniel 2.21 is developed. Verse 23. Here Daniel says to God, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me what? Is that in the third phrase? Yes. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made what? Ah, another key word was knowledge, right? And now have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. So, is this third phrase explained in Daniel 2 verse 23? Absolutely. Now, what about the second phrase? Notice Daniel chapter 2 and verses 37 and 38. Daniel 2, 37 and 38. Here comes a practical example. It says, You, O God, are a king of kings. You, O king, rather. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, He has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Why was Nebuchadnezzar on the throne? Because God placed him on the throne. And obviously he removed the previous ruler. So is the second phrase being explained in Daniel 2, 37 and 38? Not only with Nebuchadnezzar, but then God says, and after you will arise another kingdom, and after that will arise another kingdom, and that after that there will be another kingdom, 
And that kingdom then is going to be divided into ten kingdoms. And then God is going to set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So who places kings and who removes kings? God does according to scripture. Now what about that third phrase? Remember we're studying them in reverse order. The third phrase that God changes, the times and the seasons. Well, let's go back to Daniel chapter 2 and notice carefully the dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had. He saw an image, head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And then a stone hits the feet of the image. It demolishes it and the stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Did Nebuchadnezzar like God's perspective of Bible prophecy? He did not like God's perspective of Bible prophecy. How do we know that? Because in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar built an image all of gold from head to foot. What was Nebuchadnezzar saying by making an image all of gold from head to foot? He was saying, prophetic history is not going to develop as God says, but as I say. What is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do? He's trying to change God's prophetic calendar. The sequence of events that God has established. And of course he says, Woe to anyone who questions my perspective of Bible prophecy. And there's three young men that say, We question it. Because God said that there's going to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome will be divided. And then God will establish a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And you've said that that's not the way that prophetic history is going to develop. But God is in control of the times and the seasons, not you. Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, so that's the case, huh? You see that furnace over there? That's what's waiting for you if you don't bow before my image. Listen, if they bowed before the image, they would be recognizing Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic uh, scenario, right? And they refused. And we know the rest of the story. The three young men were thrown into the fiery furnace. And who showed that he was in control? That he overruled and he changed the scenario that Nebuchadnezzar had established. God did. Jesus Christ came into the furnace and he showed that he was in control. So we have these three phrases. First phrase, God changes the times and the seasons. Second phrase, God places and removes kings. Third phrase, God gives wisdom and knowledge to the wise. And these three phrases are developed in the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 in reverse order. Now let's take a closer look at the meaning of the word times because we're going to study some very important things that, that uh, dictate the mission that we have as young people in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now go with me to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 25. We're going to take a look at the word times in other scriptures. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 25. This is speaking about the insanity of uh, Nebuchadnezzar for a period of seven years. You know, the Lord made Nebuchadnezzar a vegan. <laughs> you know what? It cleared up his mind, too. Well, didn't it? (laughs) 
Daniel 4, verse 25. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. Is this a prophetic announcement about something that's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Yes, it's a prophetic event that God is announcing that is going to take place. Now notice the period of time and how it's expressed. The amount of time that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be insane, basically. It says, till what? Seven times, which we know to be what? Years, but they're, but they're years in a special sense. This is dealing with a prophecy, right? We don't apply the year-day principle, but this is still a prophecy that God is giving before it occurs. Seven times... It says, shall pass over you till you know, now notice this, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. So who is in control? God. And what does God want to teach Nebuchadnezzar? He wants to teach Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon was not great because of him, but Babylon was great because God placed Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. But I want you to notice that this prophetic event is described with the expression seven what? Times. By the way, the expression about the rule of the little horn. It says that the little horn would rule time, times, half a time. Does the word time and times there refer to certain prophetic events that God has established that they are going to occur in a certain place at a certain time with certain powers? Yes or no? Absolutely. The word time and times refer to prophetic events. God's calendar of prophetic events, if you please. Now let's go to some texts in the New Testament. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Very important passage. It says here, it's beautiful to hear those pages of the Bible turning, by the way. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is that a prophetic question? What are they really saying? They're really saying, Lord, has the moment in your prophetic calendar come to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? It's a prophetic question. In other words, is this the moment in God's prophetic calendar when the kingdom will be restored? Notice what Jesus says in verse 7. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or... Isn't that an interesting expression? We just read that in Daniel, didn't we? It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, whether the kingdom is going to be established to Israel or not, I can't tell you now because that prophetic event is in God's calendar and He has not what? He has not revealed it at this time. And then he says, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. Notice once again that times and seasons has to do with a certain prophetic event in God's calendar. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to read several of these so that we understand what the Bible means when it says that the little horn thought he could change the times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Here the Apostle Paul says, but concerning the times and the seasons, there's the expression again, 
Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Is he going to talk now about a prophetic event? Sure, he's going to talk about the close of probation and the coming of Jesus. So he says, I don't have to write to you about the times and the seasons, about the close of probation and the second coming, because I've already told you about this in my first epistle, epistle 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So it continues saying, verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So once again, times and seasons refers to what? To two events in God's prophetic calendar. The close of probation, the coming as a thief in the night, and the glorious coming of Jesus on the clouds of heaven. So once again, the expression refers to prophetic times, to events in God's prophetic calendar. Now let's compare two very interesting verses. Uh, Go with me to Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, and then we're going to go to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. We're going to compare these two verses. Luke chapter 21 and verse 24. Speaking about the Jews, and I want you to notice that there's four specific elements in this, in this verse. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And here comes the four points that I want us to remember. And Jerusalem, point number one, Jerusalem will be trampled, point number two, will be trampled by whom? Gentiles. By Gentiles, that's point number three, forever. Or has God allowed it a a certain period of time that the trampling is going to take place? Yes. What is it called? Until the what? The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Has God established a certain period which He calls the times of the Gentiles? Absolutely. Now what is that period of time? Go with me to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. Very, very similar. It says here, But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. Now, let's notice that the same four elements are here. For it has been given to whom? To the Gentiles. And they will what? Tread underfoot. That's the same as trample. Very well. So it says they will tread what? The holy city underfoot for how long? 42 months. Let me ask you, how long are the times of the Gentiles? 42 months. But it is expressed as the times of the Gentiles. By the way, you've probably read in the Gospels many times that uh, when they wanted to arrest Jesus, it says that they could not arrest him because his time had not yet come. Had the Father established a certain time when that event was going to take place? Yes. Was there a certain time when he was going to be born? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his what? His son. By the way, when the prophetic periods come to an end, in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6, the angel says that what would be no longer? Time would be no longer. By the way, that's not referring to chronological time. It's not referring to calendar time. You say, well, how do we know that? For two reasons. Because the angel is saying that during the sixth trumpet and the end of time doesn't come till the seventh trumpet. So during the sixth trumpet, the angel says time will be no longer. 
But the seventh trumpet still remains to blow, so history isn't over yet. And secondly, because after the angel says time will be no longer, the same angel says you must go and prophesy again. If the end of the world had come, what good would it do to prophesy? Are you with me? So that must refer to what time? It must refer to prophetic what? To prophetic time. So coming once again to the meaning of the word time or the word times, it simply refers to events that God has established in his prophetic calendar. They are going to occur in a certain place at a certain time with certain individuals or certain powers in a certain way. So what must the little horn think that he can do? He must think that he can change in some way the events that God has delineated in his what? In his prophetic calendar. In some way the little horn, in other words, was going to think that he could change God's prophetic calendar. Now the question is, did the Roman Catholic papacy do this? The answer is absolutely yes. I want you to notice in Daniel 7 and verse 25 that we're told that the little horn thought that he could do two things. He could change the law and he could change the times. I want you to remember two things because we're going to come to a very interesting verse in Revelation 12 uh, in a few moments. Now you say, how did the Roman Catholic papacy change the times? Let me explain it to you. By the way, probably all of you are very computer literate. I'm kind of a computer ignoramus. I come, uh, uh, you know, I know how to turn on my computer. I know, how, I know how to answer emails, and I know how to keyboard. That's about it. And look, maybe uh, look up some things on Google. But that's about as far as it gets. But if any of you want to find full documentation for what I'm sharing tonight regarding the change of the times and the implications that it has for the Seventh Day Adventist Church, uh, you can go to secretsunsealed.org and uh, click on Bible Materials, and that'll send you to Futurism's Incredible Journey, which is about a 47-page document that I wrote with all sorts of footnotes and documentation uh, of what I'm going to share with you right now. The Protestant Reformation was powerful because through Bible prophecy, it identified the papacy as the Antichrist of Scripture. In fact, you look at all of the great reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Swingley, uh, later on Wesley, all of them believed that the papacy was the predicted antichrist of Scripture. Um, and they didn't have to guess. You see, they used what I call the historical flow method. It's known as historicism. And basically, it's the idea, you know, they didn't have to use much brain power. All they had to do was, let's see, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome was divided into ten, and then among those ten, in western Rome, after Rome was divided into ten, we're supposed to look for a nasty little power that's persecuted God's people, that claims to forgive sins, that claims to be God on earth, that is decked with silver and gold and sits in the temple of God, which is the church. Hello? They didn't need to use much brain power for that, did they? 
They could follow the historical sequence. They could follow the historical flow method. And they knew exactly where to look for the Antichrist. He was to appear in Western Europe during the Middle Ages at their time. And folks, they preach with power. If sometime you want to see with what, what power they preach, you need to go with, um, with Dr. Domstiek on his tour of Europe. That's a real eye-opener. And he does it, I think, every year. Still does it once a year, right? And so I'll give him a little advertising here. You know, the, um, he doesn't do it for profit, so I can advertise it, see? Uh, it doesn't have to do with making money or anything like that. But, but he takes you all throughout the, the key places that are mentioned in Great Controversy, the Reformation. It's a real eye-opening experience. And you know, the Protestant reformers pointed the finger at the papacy and said, no doubt from the, the characteristics that are given in, the, in Scripture, in prophecy, the papacy is the predicted Antichrist. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, as a result of the Protestant Reformation, began losing thousands and thousands of people to Protestantism. Not only that, the Roman Catholic Church began losing entire countries to, Roman Catholic, uh, to, to Protestantism. And the Roman Catholic Church was alarmed just because just in a matter of a few years, entire countries were becoming Protestants. And thousands in every country were becoming Protestants. So they said, how can we counteract this Protestant Reformation? It didn't dawn on them that the power of the Reformation was found in Bible prophecy. So they called the Council of Trent. That was from 15, uh, actually the longest uh, council of the Roman Catholic Church, 1545 to 1563, 18 years, that council. And the whole purpose of it, according to them themselves, was to... Uh, confirm the Roman Catholic beliefs, and to attack and destroy Protestantism. But they couldn't do it. But in 1534, a man by the name of Ignatius Loyola, you ever heard of Ignatius Loyola? It's called Saint Ignatius Loyola, a Spaniard, founded the Society of Jesus, known otherwise as the Jesuits. And it was his avowed purpose that through this secret society, he was going to destroy Protestantism. You know, when I went with Dr. Domstick on this trip to Europe, it was very interesting to me when I entered St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, the first thing that caught my eye is a huge sunburst that's found at the front of the basilica. You can't miss it. It's huge. In fact, wherever you look, whether it be an artwork or chalices or icons or statues... You have suns galore everywhere. You can tell that sun worship penetrated the Roman Catholic Church from paganism. And of course, the pagan day of worship penetrated Roman Catholicism as well. But something that I found very interesting is walking about two-thirds of the way up to the front of St. Peter's Basilica, you have a statue of St. Ignatius Loyola. In his hand... He has the canons of the Roman Catholic Church. His right foot is on the neck in the process of crushing the neck and crush, crushing the head of a Protestant. That was the avowed purpose of the Society of Jesus, of the Society of the Jesuits, was to destroy Protestantism. And soon, Roman Catholicism discovered that the best way to destroy Protestantism was not by attacking the doctrines of Protestantism, but by attacking the method of interpreting prophecy of the Protestants. Now listen up. 
one of the individuals who came very early from the Society of Jesus was a Spaniard, a Spanish priest from Seville in Spain. His name was Luis de Alcazar. In English, those who don't know how to pronounce Spanish say Alcazar. <laughs> but the proper pronunciation is Luis de Alcazar. And he wrote a commentary on Daniel and Revelation. And in that commentary on Daniel and Revelation, he said the Protestants have it all wrong. You see, the little horn of Daniel 7 cannot be the papacy. Because the little horn really was a nasty individual that desecrated the Jewish temple by sacrificing a swine on the altar of the temple. He persecuted the Jews. And he did it for, well, not three years, but close to, for about three years, but not exactly three and a half years, but three years is close enough, he said. It's not close enough. It has to be three and a half, according to the prophecy. And so basically, he said that, that this individual with the name of Antiochus Epiphanes was actually the little horn that lived 165 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he did everything that was contemplated in the prophecy of Daniel 7. So he said, if it was Antiochus 165 before Christ, it certainly cannot be the Roman Catholic Church. In his commentary, he also said that the beast of Revelation 13 was Nero. Because there was this tradition in the Roman Empire that Nero was going to be killed and that somehow he was going to resurrect from the dead and he was going to be even more despotic than he, what he was before. So they take the deadly wound of Revelation 13 as applying to Nero. And so he argued in his book that Nero who lived around 63 B.C., was the, was the fulfillment of the beast power. So he says, look, the little horn is Antiochus, 165 B.C., and the beast is Nero in the year 63. And we're in the, in the uh, 1500s. So the papacy cannot be the fulfillment of this prophecy, of the little horn and of the beast. The fact is, another uh, Jesuit arose at the University of Salamanca, also in Spain. His name was Francisco Rivera. And he, he had a different approach. He said, I don't agree with Luis de Alcázar, because really the little horn and the beast represent the same power. And what they represent is a nasty individual who's going to rise in the future, right before the second coming of Jesus. He's going to rebuild the Jewish temple. He's going to support the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. He's going to sit in the temple and he's going to favor the Jews and then after a while, the last three and a half years, he's going to persecute the Jews and he's going to make their life miserable and he's going to desecrate the Jewish temple. So basically he was saying that prophecy was going to be fulfilled, the prophecy of the little horn and the beast was going to be fulfilled in the distant future. Therefore, these prophecies can have nothing to do with us. Now, the amazing thing is this. As I did my research, I discovered that the position of the Roman Catholic Church today is preterism. The idea of Luis de Alcázar is the official view of the Roman Catholic Church. I looked in as many commentaries as I could find to discover what they believe about the little horn and what they believe about the beast. Invariably, every commentary of the Roman Catholic Church that I did research in states that the little horn was Antiochus Epiphanes and the beast was Nero. Interesting. 
But here's the amazing thing. I also decided that I would check out liberal Protestant commentaries. By liberal Protestant, uh, I mean Protestants who don't believe in the full inspiration of the Bible. They believe, for example, in things uh, such as gay marriage. They believe that abortion is okay. Uh, they also... Uh, they also don't believe that it's possible to predict the future. They don't believe in predictive prophecy. And so I checked out all of these uh, commentaries from, by the way, if they have the word united, they're probably a liberal church. United Presbyterian, the United Lutheran, the United Church of Christ, the United Methodist, all of those are, are mainline Protestant churches that, uh, that have basically lost their belief in the full inspiration of Scripture. So I checked as many commentaries from these churches as I could discover. Do you know what I found? Without exception, every single one of the liberal Protestant commentaries teaches that the little horn was Antiochus Epiphanes and the beast was Nero. Where did they get that from? They got it from the Roman Catholic Church. That's right. However, there's another branch of Protestantism. That branch of Protestantism is the conservative Protestants, like, for example, Baptists and Pentecostals and Evangelicals. Do you know what perspective of Bible prophecy Pentecostals and Baptists and Evangelicals have? They have the futuristic scenario. In fact, you go to a bookstore today, you can't find a book in any bookstore that interprets Bible prophecy in the correct way. You'll find that every single book that's written by a conservative Protestant scholar teaches that the little horn and the beast represents a nasty individual who is going to sit in a rebuilt Jerusalem temple for three and a half literal years. He's going to persecute the literal Jews. He's going to desecrate the literal Jewish temple after the rapture of the church to heaven. So Revelation has no relevance for today. By the way, they also teach that from Revelation 4 through Revelation chapter 19... All of that applies to the Jews after the church is in heaven. Now think of the implications of that. If that's true, then there's no reason why we should be preaching the three angels' messages. Because the three angels' messages, if this particular part of Revelation is for, for the Jews, that must mean that the three angels' messages will be proclaimed after the church is raptured to heaven and they will be proclaimed to the Jews. So what has Protestantism done? Protestantism has imbibed the false prophetic preterist scenario from Roman Catholicism and has imbibed the false futuristic scenario of Bible prophecy that was devised also by Roman Catholicism. In other words, Protestantism will not only make an image to the beast in the sense of joining church and state like the papacy did during the Middle Ages, not only will they make an image to the beast by keeping the same day of worship as Rome, but they will also make an image to the beast by interpreting prophecy in the same way in which the beast established the interpretation of Bible prophecy. So what does Daniel chapter 7 mean when it says that he shall think to change times and law? The law is the Sabbath, but the change in the times is God's what? God's delineation of prophetic events. God says that the little horn is the papacy, that the beast is the papacy. But Protestantism and Catholicism say, no, the little horn was Antiochus or Nero. The little horn hasn't risen yet to power. It's going to rise in the Middle East in the future after the church is raptured to heaven. 
In other words, Protestantism will make an image to the papacy not only by the day that they keep, but also by the way in which they interpret Bible prophecy. Now, do you think that God was going to take this with his sitting down? Or do you think that God was going to raise up a people that would counteract the two things that the little horn did? Go with me to Revelation chapter 12. This is where we come in. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Actually, we'll go to verse 14 so that you see that I'm not taking that out of context. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14. Are you with me out there so far? Yes? Are you understanding what sense this system tried to change the prophetic times of God? Listen, did it try to change the time period? Yes, it says it's literal, not symbolic. Did it try to change the identity of Israel? Yes, Israel is literal. Did it change geographically where this is going to take place? Yes, it's going to take place in the Middle East. Are you following me? They've changed the place. They've changed the actors. They've changed the time periods. They've changed everything. They've tried to change God's prophetic calendar. And of course, listen folks, the reason why the devil wants to do that is because if the papacy is not the predicted little horn, then the papacy didn't change the law. What is the devil trying to do? He's trying to hide who changed what? Who changed the law and who changed the times? Now go with me to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. What does the woman represent? The church. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Question, is that the same time period as the little horn? Yes, are we in the same context? Yeah, we're in the same context. Now, notice verse 15. Continuing the thought. So the serpent spewed water out of its mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. The flood represents the multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples that the papacy used to try and annihilate God's people. But now, something comes to the rescue. What comes to the rescue? But the earth helped the woman. Do you know what the earth here represents? The earth represents the territory of the United States. Not the United States as a nation, but the territory of the United States. The earth helped the woman. Now, we'll notice in our study tomorrow during the worship service that in Revelation 13, a beast rises from that territory. A beast rises from the earth. There you have the nation rising from the earth, the place where God's people took refuge. The pilgrims arrived here before constitutional America was established. Are you following me or not? Now, notice verse 16. But the earth helped the woman. Here we're in the United States. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And now notice, after the 1260 years, what God does in response to the two changes that the little horn attempted to make. Verse 17. And the dragon, which is Satan, by the way, not only Satan, right? You know, sometimes as Adventists, we're very inconsistent. I'm going to show tomorrow that, that even conservative Adventists are very inconsistent in the way in which we interpret symbols. You know, we say that the dragon is whom? The dragon is Satan, yes. But the dragon is more than Satan. The dragon is the power that tried to slay the child when the child was born. What nation was that? Rome. The devil used Rome to try and destroy Jesus. And then that dragon gives his seat, his authority, and his power to whom? 
to the beast. Who is that dragon who gives his power to the beast? It's the devil through what? Through Rome. Now, let's carry this one step further. Revelation 13 verse 11 says that this beast that rises from the earth, it has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It must mean that it not only talks like the devil does, but it talks like what? It talks like Rome. Did you catch that point or not? We'll deal with that a little bit more extensively tomorrow. So it says, And he went to make war with the remnant of her seed. How many characteristics does this remnant have? Two? Now why do you think two? I'll give you one guess. Why do you think that the remnant has two characteristics? Is it just possible that the purpose of the two characteristics is to show that God will have a people that will counteract the two things that the little horn attempted to do? Let's take a look at it. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Who what? Keep the commandments of God. Which change does that correct? It corrects the change in the law. But there's a second characteristic. By the way, you're saying you're taking it out of context. No, I'm not. I just read that it's right after the 1260 years. Time, times, and half a time. We're in the same context. Are we not? We're in the United States. Are we not? God is going to raise up a people, particularly on the earth, who will keep the commandments of God, but they're going to have something else. Notice the last part of verse 17. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, what do you suppose is corrected by God by the testimony of Jesus Christ? Ah, go with me to Revelation chapter chapter 19 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. It says here, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Why did God raise Ellen White in the Revenant Church? In the United States, by the way. Why? I have a very tattered copy here of this book. It's called The Great Controversy. It's used and, and abused. Do you know that everything that Ellen White ever wrote was within the context of the great controversy between Christ and Satan? And do you know that this is the only book on Bible prophecy in the whole world that has Bible prophecy, right? (laughs) The historical flow method. She begins... Actually, you have to begin with the whole conflict series. You have to begin with Patriarchs and Prophets, the origin of sin in heaven. Because... You know, this is just the last chapter. (laughs) See, so you have to begin with patriarchs and prophets to find the whole controversy between Christ and Satan. You go through, you know, patriarchs and prophets, prophets and kings, desire ages, which is the battle with Christ, acts of the apostles, the battles with the early church, and then great controversy takes you from the destruction of Jerusalem till after the millennium. And time and again, Ellen White in great controversy, explains prophecy in the correct way. She explains who the beast is. It's the papacy. She explains who the second beast is, the United States. She explains the image, which will be union of church and state in the United States. The counterfeit day of worship. Counterfeit way of interpreting Bible prophecy. In other words, this book, what does this book counteract? 
This book counteracts the change in God's prophetic calendar that the little horn tried to make. The little horn says that the beast is Antiochus or the beast is some nasty individual in the Middle East in the future. Ellen White says, no, no, it isn't. It's the papacy. The false scenario says, oh, this beast, oh, this nasty individual is going to raise up a great big statue and he's going to tell everybody to worship the statue. Ellen White says, no way. It's a spiritual image to the principles of the beast, to the principles of Roman Catholicism. And, you know, uh, the, the, the people who believe in the futurist scenario, they say, oh, and you're going to get a tattoo on your forehead or on your right hand. Ellen White explains that the spiritual mark of which Sabbath observance is the visible manifestation, true Sabbath observance. So in no book can you find that it's the Sabbath other than in Seventh-day Adventist books and particularly in the writings of Ellen White. God raised up Ellen White to correct the change in God's prophetic times. And by the way, if you go to that document that I have uh, at our, on our website, You'll, you'll study the whole story of how, while God raised up Ellen White for her to write the book Great Controversy and present prophecy from a historicist perspective in England and in the United States, at the very same time, Protestantism was switching from historicism to preterism and to futurism. The very time that God raised up Ellen White to write the book The Great Controversy. So what God did at the end of this period, he says, oh, so you think you can change the times and the law? Well, I'm going to raise up a people who keep the commandments of God and who have the gift of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. Well, let me ask you, do you think that the, that the little horn and the beast are going to take this line down? No. Now listen up. When did the change in the law of God take place? It took place during the 1260 years, right? He shall intend to change times and law and his period of rule be time, times, and dividing of time. Right? Let me ask you, what is this system going to do in the future with regards to the day of worship? See, in the past, it changed in its mind the law, but what is it going to do in the future? It is going to impose the change in the law on pain of death. In other words, when this system resurrects to power, it is going to impose the mark of the beast. And what is the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast is Sunday. So let me ask you, is the mark of the beast the change in the law? It most certainly is. So the change in the law that it did in the past, it's going to enforce by law in the future, even on pain of death. So is it going to go back to its same old habits that it had in the past? Yes. In fact, folks, time and again in Scripture, we find in prophecy that this little horn was going to have two stages of power. It was going to have a past stage and it was going to, behave, it was going to misbehave in the past and then it was going to rise in the future and it's going to misbehave on a worldwide scale just like it did in the past. Do you know why? Let me explain. After the millennium, the wicked resurrect. How do they resurrect? Righteous or wicked? Do they resurrect just as wicked as they were before? So they lived before the millennium. They died at the second coming of Jesus. When they resurrect, they pick up where they, were, where they left off, right? There's no change. In fact, Ellen White says that they pick up exactly where they left off. 
the current of their thoughts begins exactly where it ceased. Which means that if when they died, they were, they, they were going to utter a word and the, half the word came out. When they resurrect, the rest of the word will come out. Because they pick up exactly at the same place where the person left off. So there's no change. So let me ask you, the papacy misbehaved in the past and he received a deadly wound. It was wounded to death. When it resurrects to power, is it going to be the same power? Yes. Is it going to behave just like it did in the past? Yes. In the past, it thought it could change the law. In the future, it's going to impose the change in the law by force, which is the mark of the beast. But now what about the change in the times? Go with me to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. And uh, we're just about finished. Revelation chapter 16. And notice verse 13. Revelation 16 verse 13. It says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of what? Hmm. Out of the mouth of the false... Now why would you have a false prophet here? What does the devil do to counteract the true gift, true gift of prophecy? He raises a what? He raises a counterfeit prophet, a false prophet. Are you seeing what's going to happen in the end time? In the end time, because God raised up a people who keep the commandments of God, and a people who have the true gift of prophecy, the devil says, okay, what I'm going to do on pain of death is enforce Sunday as the day of rest, and if you don't keep it, you're going to die. And he says, and through my false prophet, I'm going to share a false prophetic scenario with the world. Is God going to take that line down? No. Do you know how God counteracts that? This is our final point. He counteracts it in the three angels' messages. Go with me to Revelation chapter 14, which is a message that's supposed to go to the whole world. Revelation chapter 14 and beginning with verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And now notice what the first angel says. And worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the, and the fountains of waters. Why would God bring into perspective in the first angel's message, worshiping the Creator? What is the beast enforcing? The beast is enforcing the mark of the beast, the change in the law. So God says, I'm going to raise up a people that invite the world to worship him who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. Furthermore, the third angel ends by saying, here are they who what? Who keep the commandments of God. So God is going to have a people that will proclaim the commandments and will keep God's holy Sabbath even at the risk of dying to be faithful to the Lord. And then of course, notice Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. It says that another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, of course, represents apostate Protestantism as well as Roman Catholicism. And notice verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Let me ask you, is it vitally important for us to know who the beast is? Is it vitally important for us to know who 
the second beast of Revelation 13 is. Sure. Is it vitally important for us to know what the mark of the beast is? Absolutely. Let me ask you, where is the whole religious world looking for the fulfillment of prophecy today? Everybody's looking to the Middle East. They're saying, oh, the Muslims over there, the fundamentalist Muslims, you know, they're, they're fulfilling prophecy. We have to change our view of the little horn. We have some of our scholars who are saying the little horn isn't the papacy. It's the Muslims. That's Islam. Because, and so everybody looks to the Middle East. And while everybody's looking to the Middle East, the Antichrist power grows in Rome and its false prophet grows in the United States and nobody can see it because they're looking in the wrong place. Are you understanding me? Now you say, why is this important? Let's go to Revelation 15, our final text. Revelation chapter 15, and I want you to notice verse 2. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2. Speaking here about the 144,000, it says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God and then it says it sings the song, they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb it's the same group of the 144,000 did the 144,000 which are those who will be alive when Jesus comes did they understand who the beast was? did they understand what the, what the image of the beast was? did they understand what the mark of the beast was? yes did they understand the number of his name? See, that's one another thing that, that uh, Adventists are starting to play around with. Oh, you know, 666, vicarious Philly Day, oh, that doesn't apply. Don't throw it overboard so quick. Study it out. I studied it out very carefully. It's, it's the first part appeared in our newsletter. The next two parts will be the completion of the article that I wrote on the number 666. We need to know what the number of his name is. We need to know what the name is. We need to know what his mark is. We need to know who the beast is. And we need to know what the image is. Let me ask you, does the world need to know this too? Listen, the world is so messed up. The world is so confused on Bible prophecy, they don't know where to turn. So who is it that is going to tell them about this special message and special scenario that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has? It has to be us, folks. And unfortunately today... Many Adventists don't want to say it because they want to be politically correct. So we don't want to offend anyone. Well, we don't talk just to offend. Do you feel offended when God says, listen, if you worship the beast in his image, you're going to be thrown into the fire? (laughs) Is that a message of love? Of course it is. Would you rather that God didn't say anything and throws him into the fire? What kind of God would that be? See, all of God's threatenings are threatenings of love. His warnings are warnings of love because He doesn't want people to worship the beast. So what if they don't know who the beast is if they're waiting for someone in the Middle East after the rapture? What if they don't know what the mark is? What if they don't know the issue and the importance of God's holy Sabbath as a sign between God and His people? They'll be deceived. They'll be on the wrong side. And so it behooves us young people with love, with the love of Jesus, to go out and to proclaim this message, this marvelous message that God has given to our church. It's precious. It's biblical. It's powerful. It has power in itself through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
to convict souls. By the way, allow me to say, I'll give you a couple of examples. There's two ladies in my church. I won't give you their names, but uh, they used to be Roman Catholics. And uh, when they first heard me talk about the papacy as the Antichrist, they just got furious. And for a long time, they quit coming to church. To make a long story short, they're both Adventists today and they both teach in the children's division. Amen. See, just because people get mad about something, initially when you talk about it, doesn't mean that it's all bad. After all, Saul of Tarsus got pretty mad at when Stephen preached. He got furious. He didn't like, even though he knew that what Stephen was saying was true. So to quiet his conscience, he went on, a, on an expedition to persecute the Christians. But God said, uh-uh, I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. And you know what happened on the road to Damascus? The Lord humbled his heart. And he who hated Stephen and had Stephen stoned became the great apostle Paul. So folks, people might be offended at first. But then when they sit down, the Holy Spirit has a chance to work on their minds and on their hearts. You know, they start saying, you know, that really made sense. And they think about it, and eventually they come to the side of the Lord. I pray to God that God will use this uh, group of young people here to, to share God's message with the world. Amen. Don't we want to go home? Amen. You know, we give out the book, uh, Steps to Christ. You know, that's the book that we give out most. But do you know Ellen White said, and she said, said it more than once, that if there's one book above all others that she wrote that she wants to go out to the general public, it is the book, The Great Controversy. She says, I prize it more than silver and more than gold. So I want to challenge us this evening to do three things. First of all, if we haven't read The Great Controversy, read it. Secondly, read it with prayer and with an attentive mind and see where we need to make changes to be on the right side. And then take the book, The Great Controversy, and spread it like the leaves of autumn. Amen. And share this message with all of those who are searching for the truth. Does that sound like something that you want to do through the power of God? Would you raise your hand if that's what you would like me to pray for at this moment? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word this evening. Father, we thank you for taking us, taking us out of darkness into your marvelous light. What a precious message you've given to the Seventh-day Adventist church. Help us, Father, not to hide it under a bushel. Help us to let this light shine upon the minds of people that are confused, that are searching for the truth. Help us to find those people. Help us to share your message with power. Lord, I ask that you will save souls for your kingdom, for you love them so much. Plant that love in our hearts so that we might love them. Lord, perhaps not as much as you do, but plant that love so that we will love them. Father, we thank you for having been with us. We thank you for empowering us in this series of meetings this weekend. Give us a wonderful spiritual blessing. And we thank you for hearing and answering our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.